tonight, where we're ultimately going to go is John chapter 6. That's where my ultimate verse is, my, my chapter and my text for the evening. But before we get into the Bible tonight, I want us to look at the Bible as a whole. And exactly what is the Bible and where does it stand among, amongst the writings of men? Um, the fact is that the Bible is a unique book unto mankind. Uh, unique, and the, the definition of that, according to Webster, is existing as the only one or the sole example. Um, two is having none like it or none equal to it, unparalleled, uh, incomparable. And it is just because of this uniqueness of the Bible that we cannot approach the Bible like we would approach reading any other book that uh, men have written or any other literature of human effort. Uh, if we approach it as we would any other writing, it usually lends to great misunderstanding of the text and the message the word conveys. Um, so let's look at the Bible tonight. Let's see how it exists as the sole example, having no equal and nothing like it amongst the works of men. A few things I've, I've, I've collected for us tonight concerning the Bible where it stands unique. Uh, it is unique in the fact that it is written over 1,500 years of time. No other book can attest to that. It took 1,500 years from Genesis to Revelation to get the Word of God on paper and put together. It was written by more than 40 different authors from every walk of life under the sun, from kings to military leaders, to philosophers, to fishermen, to peasants, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, and shepherds. I find it very interesting that God chose men from every class, every socio-economical class, from kings to peasants, to bring forth the word of God. I find that very interesting, that God looks more at the heart of a man than his status in this world. Uh, for instance, Moses was trained in Egypt's uh, universities. He was a political leader. He was uh, turned out to be a shepherd for more than 40 years. He was a judge. He was a deliverer. David, a king, a poet, a musician, a warrior, and a shepherd. You know, Pastor Sam, did you mention that a while back about how that was kind of odd, the fact that David was a musician and a poet? singing songs and writing beautiful songs and whatnot, but in the same breath he'd take a sword and defeat an army. I mean, there's not too often you get those, you know, compatible traits or incompatible traits together in one person. David was one of them. Amos, the prophet Amos, was a herdsman. Uh, Joshua, a military general. Daniel was the prime minister of the nation. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to a pagan king. Solomon was a king and philosopher. Luke, a fisherman, uh, I'm sorry, a physician and a historian. Peter was a fisherman, Matthew a tax collector, Paul was a rabbi and a Pharisee, and Mark was Peter's secretary. Every walk of life, God chose men to write this word. Over 40 different authors, or writers, should I say, of the Bible. Um, it was written in very different places. Uh, Moses wrote in the wilderness. Jeremiah wrote in a dungeon. Uh, Daniel on a hillside in a palace. Paul while he was in prison. Luke while traveling with Paul. And John wrote in exile on the Isle of Patmos. So the Bible was unique in the fact that it was written in many, many different places. It was written in very different times. Uh, David wrote in times of war and sacrifice, while Solomon wrote in times of great peace and abundant prosperity. Very different times in which the Bible was written. It was written in uh, different moods, very different moods. Uh, some writing from the heights of joy, 
while others writing from the depths of despair and sorrow. We see that. Um, some wrote from times of certainty and conviction, while other men wrote from times of doubt and great confusion. It's unique in the fact that it was written in th- three separate continents. The Bible as a whole was written on three separate continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Three different continents. I don't know of any other book that can, that can attest to that being written on three separate continents. It was written in three different languages. Hebrew, which was practically all of the Old Testament, and it was the original language of the Israelites. Uh, the second language that was written in is Aramaic. Not, not Arabic, but Aramaic. And Aramaic was the common language until the time of Alexander the Great, which was about 6 B.C. to 4 B.C. It was a common language of the people. And a matter of fact, I said most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there's actually actually sections of it that's written in Aramaic. Daniel 2 through 7 is actually in Aramaic, and so is Ezra 4 through 7, I want to say. And uh, of interesting note, too, there are actually some passages in the, in the New Testament that are written in Aramaic as well, too. Um, matter of fact, probably one of the most popular ones is... Uh, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. You know what, what that is? As Jesus from the cross crying out in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, interesting side note, Aramaic has probably the longest continuous history of any language known. It was the language of the patriarchs, and still in some portions of the world today, they still speak Aramaic. Um, so that, Hebrew, we have Aramaic, we have the third language, which, which is Greek which almost the entire New Testament is written in Greek. Um, it was the international language at the time of Christ. And uh, sort of like English in the modern history is an international language, so was Greek at the time that the Gospels were written. And um, it's interesting to note that indeed God had so, so far saw that the time whenever the propagation of the message of his son, for the first time in human history, there would be an international language. So whenever they would write it out, there was no translation necessary. They actually got the Greek. That's what they got. And they got, and of course, over time and different languages start coming up, we start having translations into different uh, languages and whatnot. But it was, uh, it was uh, the first language internationally known, and, and they didn't have any translation necessary for the, uh, the, the Greek uh, New Testament. Another thing that the Bible is unique in is the fact that it, it addresses hundreds of controversial topics. Subjects that are uh, not only controversial, but create opposing opinions whenever it's mentioned or discussed. Hot topics such as marriage, divorce and remarriage, adultery, sexual relations, homosexuality, obedi- uh, uh, obedience to authority, truth-telling and lying, character development, parenting, the nature and the revelation of God, etc., etc., Many and many of hot topics that the Bible covers. And yet, from Genesis to Revelation, all the writers address all of these topics with an amazing degree of harmony. Remember, over 1,500 years, over 40 different authors, writers, should I say, because there's one author of the Bible that, that we know. So let me correct myself. But they all, over the course of time and history in their writings, all harmonize their thoughts on these hot topics which create such controversy and such you know, back and forth between today. In spite of the Bible's diversity, the Bible presents itself as a single unfolding story. This is the story that God redeemed. uh, It's the story of God's redemption of human beings. Um, Paradise lost in the book of Genesis becomes paradise regained in the book of Revelation. Uh, In Genesis, the way to the tree of life was cut off. In the book of Revelation, 
the gate to the tree of life is open forevermore. Um, and the unifying thread that runs throughout all this diversity that we have in the Bible is salvation. Salvation um, from sin and condemnation. That's the underlying thread that we see. And not only salvation from sin and condemnation, but to a life of complete transformation and unending bliss in the presence of a merciful and a holy God. Now, the most important of the things that we can talk about in the Bible and its uniqueness is amongst all the people described in the Bible, the leading character throughout is the one true living God made known through Jesus Christ. That is the most important character of the Bible, and it is God. And then the ultimate revelation of who he is was the person of Jesus. I want you to consider this for a second. Consider this the Old Testament. The law provided the foundation for Christ. The historical books of the Old Testament provide the preparation for the Christ. The poetical works aspire to Christ. The prophets display the expectation of Christ. The New Testament. The Gospels record the historical manifestation of the Christ. The Acts relate to the, propag uh, the prop um, propagation of Christ. The Epistles give the interpretation of Christ. And the Revelation reveals the consummation of all things in Jesus. So from start to finish, it is based on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, from cover to cover, the Bible is Christocentric. It is Christ-centered. And although it's made of many different writers, the Bible shows its continuity as one singular book. Now, <clears throat> where I want to go with this tonight is the fact uh, that this last thing that I want to talk about, and it's not most important, but it is very, very important when it comes to us understanding and us to reading the Bible and getting the correct uh, context of the Bible. We have to know that the Bible was written in many different literary styles. Okay, It's just not like a newspaper where it's giving you a narrative form or a historical writing. The Bible consists of poetry. It consists of historical narrative as well, too, but it goes into song, to romance, didactic treatise, uh, personal correspondence we find in the Bible. We find memoirs. We find uh, biographies. We find autobiographies, prophecies, metaphoric language, uh, parabolic language, parables, the parables that Jesus taught, as well as allegory. So we find all these mixes of literary styles in the Bible. Question, have you ever wondered why so many people in so many different denominations can read the same book yet come up with so many different interpretations of the same verse? I mean, you ask 10 different people what this may mean, you may get 10 different answers. How is that? How, how does that happen? Whenever we're reading from the same book yet we have such a different interpretation of what it may mean. It happens by this, sim this simple reason. When you start reading poetry as historical narrative, it happens whenever you start reading historical narrative as allegory. It happens whenever you start taking metaphorical language in the Bible and interpreting it as law, etc., etc. You see, the literary uh, device in which the Bible is used is so important for us to understand to actually gain an accurate um, interpretation of what they're saying, okay? When we divorce the text... From its literary style, the bottom literally falls out. We, we have no certain ground to stand upon if we don't know what is this author saying and how is he approaching it, how is he writing it. Matter of fact, it becomes personal opinion uh, of what this verse means. I think it means this or I think it means that. However, we see in 1 Peter 1.20 
that he says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, he's talking specifically about prophecy, the prophecies that were given concerning the end times, concerning the Christ. But don't you know this notion goes over to all the Scripture? When it says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Let me just tell you what that means. The Scripture means what it means, and it is not up for interpretation. It means what it says it means. Um, and if we don't, this is an important thing. If we do not have the same understanding that the original audience who was listening to this message understood, we have the wrong understanding. I want to I, I say this, and I want to say it adamantly. There are a thousand different applications to an individual verse. There's a thousand applications. However, there is only one interpretation. And I want to say that again for emphasis. There's a thousand different applications to any given scripture of the Bible, but there is only one interpretation. It is almost impossible for us to attain the correct interpretation for any scripture apart from knowing the literary style in which it was written and the context in which it was written. This is why we must not attempt to read the Bible just like any other book. Its uniqueness demands we read it differently. You see, the word incorrectly understood or spiritualized inappropriately is devoid of power. It's watered down and it becomes powerless to change the effect. This is why it is so important for us to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. We start by asking, how is this text written? What is the literary style? Is it poetry? Is it historical narrative? Is it personal correspondence or is it allegory? What's the literary context we're looking at? And secondly, what is the context? For context, we have to read what's going on before it and what's going on after it. Not just the one little piece that we're looking at. We have to get an overall broad view of what's the, what's the subject, what's the conversation at hand that we're talking about. So if we get these two questions correctly, the literary style and the context, um, we become very, very close, and we become actually the closest to the truth of what's actually being taught in the Scripture. You see, like I said a while ago, the power lies in the truth. Not what we think the truth is, or not what uh, inappropriate spiritualizations may dictate to us, but power comes when we correctly understand and correctly apply the Word of God. That's why it's so important, y'all, that we have to have the right interpretation. And one of the ones that I can just give an example of is um, when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's probably one of the most used and abused scriptures out of the entire Bible that I hear people quoting from most. Because what, what do we hear most of the times whenever people quote, quoting that? It's uh, in the realm of athletics. Like, God's going to empower me. I can do all things. I can go out and you know, score 10 touchdowns or score, you know, 50 points or whatever the case may be. But what was the context of Paul, what Paul was saying before, right before he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul was telling the, the followers and the fellow Christians, I've known what it means to have everything. I know what it means to have nothing. I know what it means to be full and to be well fed. I know what it means to be starving. I know what it means to be free. And I know what it means to be in prison and in jail. But praise the Lord, even so, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's the context? What's the message? No matter what life sends our way, the good or the bad, with Christ, we can bear all things. We can do all things. 
So you see, context matters whenever we start, when we start uh, looking at the Word of God and we start trying to apply the Word of God to our lives. Because let me tell you something. With an athlete's trying to go score a touchdown and he's praying, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I can say with almost 100% certainty there's zero power behind, behind that application of the Scripture if he's using it for, you know, athletic purposes or this and that and not using it to try to get through the hard times of life. You know what I mean? So... I used to say this. I used to say that I, I read the Word of God literally. That's not technically correct, though. While there is a lot of literal historical narratives that we need to be taken literally out of the Bible, the more important thing that we need to do is read it contextually. I no longer consider myself to be a literal Bible reader. I'm a contextual reader. I keep it in context and make my, make my, my, uh, I draw off the Word off of the context of what it's speaking. Um, and just, just to, to make my point, I want to look at a few examples here. If you have your Bible, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Um, let's look at 1 through 5. And I'm going to read the scripture, and I'm going to throw out a few, a few uh, literary styles, and, and let, let's see if we can see what, what the word's saying here. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock into the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. He says, do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place which you stand is holy ground. What literary context would you think, just off the top of your head, you think, what's, what's he writing here? Would this be Poetic? Would this be poetry? Would this be allegory? Like a, getting a, di- a deeper spiritual meaning off of something what he says? Or would this be more in line of a historical narrative? He's giving it to you exactly the way it happened. He mean giving you places, giving you, you times, you know, giving you what he actually did. Historical narrative. Turn, in, turn to Psalm chapter 1. And I have a few of these, but I, I just, I'm going to name just a couple. I'm not going to list all the ones that I have, but just to give us some examples here. Um, let's just, just start off with three. And he says, he shall be planted like a tree. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. If we had to ask ourselves a question here, what would we consider this? Is this historical narrative? Would this be poetry? Would this be metaphoric? I would wager to say both on the poetic side and on the, the metaphoric side, okay? But does that mean because it's a metaphor or it's poetry, it does not stand as truth? Granted, we're not trees. We're humans. We have no leaves that, that won't wither. Um, you know, we, we don't soak up the water from the river to gain life and gain sustenance. But what he, the, 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 the psalmist is saying right here is that when you walk in, in God's way, when you walk, in the count, uh, walk not in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scornful, but you delight in the law of the Lord, you're like a tree that's planted by water. So what does that bring to mind? You know, fruitfulness, 
Uh, you have your provision. You have a, a water, what water is to a tree. Brings life, brings provision, brings health to its leaves, bring much fruit, and whatever you do shall prosper. So just because it's metaphoric doesn't mean it's not the absolute truth of how God deals. But just the fact is we're not trees. So we don't take it as literal like I'm a tree, I have leaves, I'm going to do this and that. just won't happen, okay? just doesn't fit. Um, uh, if, you want to, if you're writing it down, if you're taking notes, just a few other ones that I, that I kind of thought up was uh, Psalm 6, 6 through 7. Actually, I'm going to read this one because this is a good one. Uh, and this is David here. Psalms chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows old because of my enemies. Do we think that, can we take this literally? That David's literally crying so much that he's floating down a river of tears on his bed? Is that literal? No, it's poetic. What is he saying? The anguish of my heart. It's just so overbearing right now that I just can't stand it. It's just too much for me to bear. That's the message, and that's, that's the truth of the word of God, what he's conveying there. So if we know that this is poetic, then we don't take it literally. We don't say, well, David was sitting there and cried himself a river. It's not the way it goes. We have a literary context and a literary understanding of how we should read into this, okay? Um, some big ones that I thought, and just, I'm going to just go down them. Daniel chapter 7, prophetic and allegorical, okay, because he talks about these beasts rising up, and he was like a bear and had wings of an eagle, and the wings were pulled off. We know that he's not talking about animals here. He's talking about future kingdoms. So there's some allegory here that, that's in some meta, metaphorical um, language here. Um, the Gospels are very interesting, by the way, um, because the Gospels throw, throw in a good mix. For the most part, the, the Gospels are a biographical text. It's someone witnessing the life of another, and pinning that, that history, that, that, that person's life. It's a historical narrative as well, too. It uses metaphorical language. Jesus does that often in the middle of a historical narrative, and Jesus is teaching them didactic uh, treatises, or, or giving them lessons of life and how to learn. Right in the middle of it, he'll throw metaphorical language in it. And then the next chapter over, he's starting to talk in parables and teach. So the gospel is a little a mixed bag, but if you start reading, and not just reading like you'd read a newspaper, but like really studying it, you can pick it up pretty easily. Okay, this is a historical narrative. This is actually happening. And then, oh, look, Jesus is starting to talk right here, and he's using spiritual language. He's using metaphors to describe certain things about him. And, uh, you know, some people, even in Jesus' day, understood, misunderstood the metaphors and took them to be literal meaning, but they, they had a great misunderstanding, and he corrected that a lot of times, too. But First Timothy, uh, Paul's letters to Timothy, personal correspondence. Pouring into Timothy's life, the truths of the Word of God, personal correspondence. Romans, uh, personal correspondence, because he was writing to the Roman church. Didactic treaties, um, historical narrative. The book of Acts is pretty much all historical narrative and, and is to be read and interpreted as such. And, of course, the revelation, prophecy, allegory, metaphorical language. So what I really want to do for us tonight is to apply what we just talked about how to look at Scripture, how to read Scripture, and apply it tonight to John chapter 6. And we're going to walk through it tonight, okay? Well, the reason I chose John chapter 6 is because it presents information that has been a major hot topic of disagreement within the church, okay? It says some things that have actually split denominations about the teachings of Jesus. And let's see tonight if we can take uh, the correct understanding and gain the correct understanding of some of the things that Christ said by using the literary style in which he spoke and context methods. So if you have your Bibles with me, turn, turn to John chapter 6. 
And we'll start reading. And I'm, I'm going to read through, uh, first off, just starting verses 1 through 9. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which was the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs which he had performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great multitude coming toward him. And he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that even everyone may have a little. And one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad who, who is here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? We see that after these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee. After what things? After what happened? If you read in chapter 5, Jesus performed miracles, great miracles in chapter 5, and gave them a didactic treatise on, sta- on his standing with God or his equality with God. So he did miracles. He healed the diseased. He, g- he gave a, a, a mighty sermon about his equality with God and who, who his nature was, who he, who he came as and what he came to do. Just looking at the, openings, the opening statement of chapter 6, what would we think we're dealing with here as far as the literary style? I would venture to say we're, we're, we're thinking biographical because it's telling of Jesus' deeds. I'd also say it's historical narrative, too, because it's actually given the history of what Jesus did. Now, it says that great multitudes followed him because they saw the miracles he performed on the sick. If you're just breezing through this and reading it, you'll probably miss it. But if you're sitting here and you're going to study it, you're going to catch this. This gives you context. Were they following Jesus at this point because they believed in him to be the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, the Savior of the world? No. They were following Jesus merely because of the miracles. The things that they saw Jesus do, it attracted to him. They may have been diseased. They may have had a need in their body. They came to Jesus, and that's why they were following. Um, Once again, they came to Jesus because of a physical need, not a spiritual need. This sets up the context for the whole chapter, the all of chapter 6, and we're going to see that. Um, Luke chapter 9, this is Luke, this is not John. Luke chapter 9 gives us the same scenario, and it actually gives us a little more information. It says that Jesus was trying to get away from the crowd. He was trying to withdraw with his disciples up to the mountain to the time of rest, refreshment, prayer, getting, just getting him and his disciples away. Um, but then it says in verse 5 that Jesus lifted up his eyes, and that he saw a great multitude coming towards him. Um, this is the interesting thing, that even though Jesus wanted his rest and he wanted his time for w- away with his disciples, he did not turn away the crowd. This is important. Jesus selflessly went back down and started ministering to the crowd, even when he wanted to be alone. That's a great character, great character, and something that could be learned. The second part of uh, 5 through 9 um, Jesus asked his disciples, he said, where shall we, we get bread to feed, to feed these people? Scholars say he asked Philip because Philip was from the nearest town of Bethsaida. And that's kind of, kind of why he, he pushed on Philip a little bit. He said, where can we go and get enough bread that the, these may, may, may eat? And uh, it's interesting because the Bible tells us that Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. 
Even before he asked Philip about the bread, he knew what he was going to do. You see, the multitudes uh, came to Jesus to provide. Um, the multitudes came, and Jesus wanted to provide food for the crowd, but he wanted his apostles' input of what they thought. They basically said, it's impossible. 200 denarii worth, worth of, of money. That, that, a denarii was a day's wage. So it was about 200 days or, or almost eight months of a year's salary to feed the people who came. And they found, what they find? Five barley loaves and, and two small fish. What does it say to us that he had so little and so many people? A little in the hand of the master goes a long, long way. You see, this is the interesting thing about grain. Grain, while it's still whole, you can plant grain and you can make it multiply. It's still technically alive. It'll go into the seed, it'll die, and then it'll produce more. And it'll come up. But once you break that grain down and you make flour and you make bread, it's a dead substance. People don't go and plant flour into their field and expect to harvest wheat. Okay, it's dead. Same thing with the fish. As long as the fish is alive in the water, it can reproduce after its own kind. You take it out of the water, it won't be very long, it dies, and it won't be able to produce. What is the significance of this right here? The fact that Jesus took dead bread and dead fish and made it multiply. Even dead things in the hand of the master can be revived and be multiplied. This is what we shall see. Verses 10 through 4, let's read. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down in number of about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves and he had given thanks. He distributed them unto his disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise the fish, as much as they wanted. And so when they were filled, they did, everybody just didn't have a little bit. Everybody had enough to get full. They were filled. He said to his disciples, gather the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, the disciples gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, which had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is the prophet. This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. I find it interesting right here that Jesus uh, tells his disciples to make the, make the people sit down. And the, the scripture tells us that it was an area with much grass. It's very reminiscent to me of Psalm, Psalm 23. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I, sh uh, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. You know, some of that, some of that poetry in Psalm 23 may have a little, little prophetical sprinkling on it, right? Jesus did that. Very interesting, I find. And the number of men were 5,000. Now, most scholars will tell you that it wasn't just men in the crowd. It was men, women, and children. So the combined number of people in the crowd were probably upwards of 10,000. They just counted the men, but it was probably close to 10,000 souls there. And in verse 11, it tells us that he took the loaves, gave thanks, and gave them to the 12, who then gave them to the people and did the same with the fish. Jesus supplied the power. The disciples walked in obedience, and the needs of the people were met. You see the conjunction? You see the conjunction? Jesus could have just did it all by himself, but he didn't want. He said, I have the power to provide. If you have the will to walk, we're going to meet the world's needs. They were filled. He said to his disciples, gather up the fragments so that none is lost. They gathered 12 baskets full. 12. I find it most interesting that after all the needs were met, they had 12 baskets left over. 
That would be exactly one basket per disciple. Not only were the needs met, but they had more than enough provision. I can testify that to my life. God's done that with me. God has not only provided for my needs, but he has provided so much more that I can have an abundance and an overflow. Therefore, I can turn around and do what what, what pleases God and and makes God smile is give because he's a giver, you know. This, this, this principle, I believe, is shown right here in the 12 baskets. And I don't think it's coincidence that it was 12 baskets and 12 disciples. I really don't. Then the mid said, surely this is the prophet that has come into the world. Where did they get this from? And mind you, they didn't say a prophet. This is a prophet that's come into the world. They said this is the prophet. Not like a prophet like Jeremiah or Elijah or, you know, all these other guys. Where did they get this from? They got this from Exodus, I'm sorry, I think it's Deuteronomy, 18, verses 15 through 19. Deuteronomy, 18, 15 through 19. And this is Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from the midst of your brethren. Him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, what day is that? That's the day that, that God came down in a burning fire covered with, with a cloud of smoke. And he came down and he sp- started to speak. God's audible voice started to speak to the people. And they said, no, please, let us not hear the voice of God, at least we die. That's what, that's what he's referring to here. Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, at least I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up among them a prophet like you from among their brethren. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require of him. This was a messianic prophecy concerning the Christ who was to come, the one who was to come. So it's kind of like all of a sudden, uh, these people kind of seem like they see the light. Surely, this has to be the prophet that was to come. Look at what he just did. An acknowledgement of, of Christ, or so it seems to be right now. You see, the multiplying of the bread gave them a vision of Moses in the wilderness when they had to rely on God's provision of manna from heaven in order to survive. For 40 years, God provided manna from heaven, and the Israelites being physically sustained by this. This is what brought pictures to their mind when they saw the, the, the loaves multiplied out here when there was no food around. And they said, this must be the one whom the prophets, uh, who Moses spoke of, who can feed and sustain thousands and thousands with only a few loaves and a couple fish. Matter of fact, verse 15. Did we read that? Let's see. Verse 15 of John 6 says that after they said, uh, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. They were about to just enthrone him right, right then and there. This man just fed 10,000 people with a word. He's our king. Let's make him king now. He said whenever Jesus realized this is what they're about to do, he withdrew from the crowd. He pulled away. He went back up the mountain. Why did they do this? Was it because they believed and truly believed that he was the prophet that was to come and he was the Messiah? He was the savior of the world? Or was it because that he could supply food enough for an army that would be essential in the overthrow of Roman tyranny? You see, to be able to provide food like that for an army, 
the battle was almost certainly yours in this day. I mean, they could, they could siege your city, which they did. The Babylonians sieged Jerusalem for years before the, the walls finally came down, and the people basically starved. But if you have somebody like this in your midst, you, you set up high walls, nobody's getting in. And you know what? You don't have to go out either. They wanted to make him king. I believe it was for carnal motives. Plus, it wasn't the proper time for the soon coming physical return, the physical kingdom of God here on the earth. It wasn't that time yet. But once again, the multitude's motive, it was natural. It was material. It was physical. It was not spiritual. That was their motive for wanting to make him their king. Let's read on. 16, uh, and I'm, I want to summarize this part right here, okay? It, it's, uh, it's good, but I want to get to the other side of it. But I'm going to read it now. I just want to give a quick summary. So starting off in verse 16. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and went over to the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Then the sea arose because of a great wind blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Quick geographical survey here. On the east side of the Sea of Galilee is a hilly, very mountainous area. On the west side of the Sea of Galilee is, is relatively flat compared to the east side, okay? They were on the east side, Jesus was up in the mountain. Matthew and Mark tells us that Jesus sent the disciples away. It doesn't say that in John, he says they went, but Matthew and Mark tells us that Jesus sent them. So they're going and all of a sudden they're rowing and they're using the human effort and all their effort, all of a sudden headwinds come because that's the way it would come. It would come from the west to the east, the wind, just the way of the land. And so they, in, in, in the face of great winds and a great storm arising in their human effort, they're only about halfway out in the middle of the sea. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes to them in their trouble. He was probably watching them from the mountain for, for quite some time, I would imagine, and came down and walked to them. And he said they willingly received him into their boat, and immediately they were on land. Now, that may not mean much to you unless you realize that the point where they were going across was probably seven to eight miles wide. They were only three miles across. Yet when Jesus climbs into their boat, they're immediately at their destination, immediately where they're supposed to go. Let me tell you, that's a message all in itself. And that'll preach and that'll teach. Because in our human efforts against the, the wind and the waves and, and, and the, the, the cares of this life, we won't make it very far. We, we may make some headway and may make some ground. But whenever we let Jesus into our boat, the destination is fast and it's quick. And he brings us to the place where he has us for us to go in life. Amen? So I want to just summarize that real quick. But where I want to go here is uh, to chapter, um, I'm sorry, verse 22. And let's read 22 through 25. So on the following day, when the people were, uh, were standing on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no boat there except the one which the disciples had entered. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they had ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Um, let me see if I want to keep going. Yeah, I'm going to keep going. Um, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, his disciples came, they got into the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, 
but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal upon him. And then they asked, What shall we do that we may work the work of God? And Jesus answered to them and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. We see that they came to the very spot where the last miracle occurred, the breaking of the, the, the loaves, the multiplying of the loaves. There was, no, uh, there was no one there to be found, so they went looking for Jesus once again. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they asked him, How'd you get here, Rabbi? And it's funny that Jesus completely ignores that question. Jesus, and he does this quite a bit too, by the way. He won't answer a question that he doesn't want to answer. Matter of fact, he's going to give it to you in a different way. He completely ignores the question and instead tells them, You seek me, not because of the signs, but because you ate and you were fulfilled. You, you were filled. You had sustenance given to you. And by this time, their, their stomachs were probably empty again, and they were looking for some more bread. You seek me because I met a physical need of yours. And then he goes on to tell them, don't labor for those things that are temporal and the bread just which gives you temporal satisfaction, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which I will give you. He said, you're working your toil for the things and the sustenance that are here today and gone tomorrow. That's what you work for. But I offer you a sustenance that will provide for eternity. Only he and no one else has it. And that's the key. It's interesting because, once again, they proclaim him to be a prophet. They want to make him king. And now they're seemingly asking him, what can we do to do the works of God? Show, show us the way. How can we please God? How can we do the things that he will accept? And this is one of the key verses in, in this context. Is one of the first things that Jesus hits him with is just the simple fact of belief. You want to work the works of God? You want to do the deeds of God? You believe in the one whom God has sent. That is the work of God. He says it clearly. Jesus said that the acceptable work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. Jesus says, believe in me. Not in who you think I am, or not who you want me to be, or who you think I should be, but who I am in truth. Verses 30 through 31, things get more interesting and quite a bit more provocative here in the story. 30. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? What sign? Are you people really serious? Because just yesterday, Jesus fed 10,000 people with five loaves of bread. And now you're asking him for another sign? You still need a sign after all this? He said, they said, Moses gave us bread from heaven. What are you going to do? Our fathers ate the man in the desert as is written. He gave them bread to eat. They're actually trying to manipulate Jesus into giving them more bread. They said, you know, Moses fed us. And if you're really greater than Moses, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you're really greater than Moses, do it again. Jesus appropriately redirects them at this point to something so much of a greater importance than physical bread. Let's read on 32 through 34. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. This is very reminiscent about uh, back to the woman at the well. Whenever uh, Jesus goes and asks her for a drink, and he's like, you know, why are you asking me for a drink? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. And he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink. 
And, uh, you know, I give it to you. And he says, sir, you know, you don't have a, a bucket. How are you going to get water? He said, the, the water that I give to you uh, will become a, a well, deep well within you, that you'll never thirst again. Anyone who drinks the water I offer will never thirst again. What is your first reaction? Sir, give me this water so that I never have to come back to this well again. You see, she was still on the, on the physical, the material of just being thirsty. And Jesus is talking about a spiritual concept. And that water and that life he was talking about was the spirit which was to come. She didn't know it at the time. This is very reminiscent of these people right here. It says, sir, give us this bread to eat. You know, we want to eat it. Um, Jesus begins at this point to drop a spiritual hammer on these people. Let's read it, 35 through 42. Um, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. What did Jesus say was the work of God? To believe. You have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have not come, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then they start to complain. Doubting, unbelieving, now they're moving on to complaining. Because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. He said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Do we not know his father and his mother? How is it that he says, I came down from heaven? I am the bread of life. We see this especially in the Gospels. Like I said earlier, in the middle of a historical narrative, Jesus drops a metaphorical and spiritual bomb. Bam. You know, and this is actually one of the first I am statements in the book of John, which there are many I am statements, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You know, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. If we were to take this literally and, and think that Jesus is talking in literal terms right here in the middle of a historical narrative, uh, we would have to believe that Jesus is literally a piece of bread that can give us somehow spiritual life. We'd have to literally believe that Jesus is the light that's shining on this world and giving us photosynthesis in the plants and, and giving us suntans if we are burning us if we stay out too long. We'd have to believe that he's a door that stands on a hinge that we could push through Jesus and just walk through him like a door. We'd have to believe that he's a plant, that he's a vine, that anything that's connected to the vine is going to get nutrients and sustenance from it if we're taking it in a literal format here. But Jesus makes the statement, I am the bread of life. He is saying, I am the sustenance and life for all those who partake of me. He who comes and believes has everlasting life. Just as physical bread gives natural life, the bread that comes from heaven that will soon, in, the, in this gospel narrative, will soon be broken on a Roman cross or bring eternal spiritual life to it, whoever comes and partakes. Excuse me. Verse 3. Then Jesus answered to them and said, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written by the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, anyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they are dead. 
This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. I want to bring up a point right here, too. And I don't want to make a theological uh, you know, conclusion about it, but I just want to bring it up. This is the second time in, in, in this one chapter where Jesus says things like, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Like I said, I don't want to make any theological conclusions or go down that rabbit trail tonight, but it's very interesting that three times Jesus tells these unbelieving who still want a sign after everything they've done that, you know what, those whom the Father sends and those who hear the Father will hear me and they come to me. <clears throat> Jesus once again reiterates here, it is he who believes in me has eternal life. Remember, what shall we do to do the works of God? Jesus said to believe. Goes back to the real work, belief. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna and died. He who partakes on this bread will live forever, and the bread I give to the world is indeed my flesh. Jesus equates life-giving bread, physical bread, life-sustaining bread to his flesh. That's pretty deep then something, something inevitable happens. They went from unbelief and doubt to complaining. Now they're quarreling. Things are starting to get pretty hot and heated right here. Verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's like, I can almost hear the arguments happening right now. It's like, no doubt it was in many of the crowd's minds because they understood the law. And the law strictly, the law of Moses strictly forbade the eating of human flesh, and the drinking of any kind of blood. Matter of fact, you fast forward to the New Testament, the book of Acts, one of the prohibitions and the only prohibitions that the church elders put upon the New Testament church was refrain from blood, refrain from eating uh, animals that still have the lifeblood in them. You know, So he, he goes from uh, you know talking about the flesh, and then they're thinking, well, okay, he can't be talking about literal flesh, but he's telling me that it's his flesh. But yeah, we know the Old Testament law says no flesh eating, no blood drinking. Um, now, all of a sudden, it starts to get, get hard. All of a sudden, the followers who were uh, happily to come along with the miracles, happily to come along to get fed, happily to come along to see the resurrections, now they really begin to falter. Their unbelief really begins to show right now. And it seems that the more their unbelief rises, the more adamant Christ is in, in the things that he's saying right here. Um, let's go on here. Uh, 53, and this is where Jesus turns it up even more. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As I live because the Father, um, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, but he who eats this bread will live forevermore. These things he said in the synagogue as he, as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew, him, knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you would see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. 
The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? This doesn't doesn't reference the fact that they can't understand what he's saying. This is a reference to the fact that they can't accept these teachings that he's he's coming with now. Um, No doubt Jesus' words were somewhat mysterious to them, but the parts that they they did understand were really disturbing to them. And uh, Jesus basically was demanding complete allegiance, demanding that everything else, including physical bread, be put in second place to him. And he asked them, does this offend you that I say this? What therefore if you saw the Son of Man ascend? These are the same people that just tried to make him king. And he says, my teachings offend you? What if you were to see me go back to the throne of God and see me ascend back up into heaven? Would you still be offended if you saw this? Notice that Jesus does not change his tune, nor does he back off. Instead, he asks the, the, the question about them being offended, and if they would have still been offended to see him raise. Now, this right here, y'all, is the theme verse for everything we've been talking about. And I don't want to summarize this yet and go back and, and summarize it, but this is the theme verse. And Jesus tells them plainly, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. But some of you do not believe. You see, Jesus up until this point had been talking about flesh and blood and eating this flesh in order to receive eternal life. Eat my flesh, you drink my blood, you'll live forever. This is an interesting note right here because this is one of the very few times, and I can't find it many other times, where Jesus actually opens up the metaphorical language or even the parables to the masses. You see, he actually gives commentary. That's what this verse right here is, commentary to the teaching that he had just talked to them about his flesh and blood. And this is, like I said, again, one of the only times you'll find this in Scripture. If you can find other spots, please let me know because I have not found it. Commentary and explanation were reserved for the 12, the inner circle. You saw Jesus do that time and time again. He threw out a parable. He let it, he, he let it go where it, where it was going. Either they, they accepted it and they heard the truth of it or they rejected it. And then his disciples would come back and say, Lord, we don't understand it. Tell us. And then he would begin to exegete it. He would begin to break it down and give commentary about what he just spoke. Jesus did not do this to the masses. That's why it's very interesting that he did do it right here. He said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. There were some who didn't believe. And he says that he knew from the beginning who would believe and who would betray him. In verse 65, this is the third time, like I just mentioned, in the discourse over a chapter where he says, no man can come unto me unless it has been granted to him by my father. The Bible says in 66 that from that time, many of his disciples walked away. And walked with him no more. You see, the food was great. The miracles were great. The, the rock star status of, of having Jesus of Nazareth walking through your town and following him was great. But the minute it costed them something, laying down their will, laying down their, their interpretation, laying down their life, dude, I think I'm going to I'm gonna have to turn back now. This is just a little too much for me. You see, they were fans. They were not followers. And this is why I believe Jesus is giving them this hard message because they, they didn't believe he said, well, okay, let me speak to you unbelieved then. Let me give you something that's so, so supernatural, so hard in the natural to understand and digest. Unless you listen to it with spiritual ears, you'll be offended by it. It'll cause offense. And then he said, turning to the 12, and it makes, it makes it clear, his 12, the apostle, who would be the apostles. Will you go also? 
will you lead me as well? And Peter, from the revelation of God, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where shall we go? You're the only one, to, you're the only one who has the words to eternal life. We're sticking with you. And Jesus went on to say, he said, that's great. He said, but did I, did I not choose all 12 of you? And yet one of you is a devil, but I chose you. This is what I want us to take away tonight, y'all, for, from our, our study of, of John chapter 6. And I know here tonight we're the core, so they're not fans in here. We're followers in here. But I really want to get it down deep in our, in, inside of ourselves. Are we truly fans or are we followers? Are we tagging along with Jesus just because of the goodies? Are we seeking after God because of what he can give to us? You know, peace, prosperity, good life, a better life. Are those the reasons we're really following behind Christ? And if so, which much of the professing, professing Americanized Christian world, they're these followers. The followers who are coming to, coming to Jesus for a better life and to have their dreams and their hopes and, and their desires fulfilled versus coming to him for their spiritual need of the debt that they could not pay. And if so, if that, this is the, the, the mode that we're coming to Christ in, um, just like those who crossed over the sea to go find bread, and then when things got tough, they bailed, so will we. If us as, we as Christians follow Christ for material, physical purposes, when the times get tough, we're bouncing too. However, if we come to him in sincerity and truth, if we come to him because we know that he is the way, the truth, and the life, if we come to him because we know that we fall short and he has never fallen short, if we believe in him for who he really is, we receive eternal life. And as bread gives us physical strength and physical sustenance, the bread of heaven gives us spiritual life. He gives eternal life and satisfies our hungry soul. So many times we in America, we try to fill up on the material things, try to fill that void in our life that we think, you know, we need that sustenance. We need something to fill that void. And oftentimes what happens is it leaves us just as empty as we were before, if not more, than the damage that it, done, it does to our lives. We're worse off than we, were, we first started. However, when we come to the bread of life, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it is that life that truly satisfies, not only here and now, but eternally so. And if anyone is hungry, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and let him partake of the spiritual bread of life, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Lord, we just thank you for your word tonight, Lord. We just thank you for the truth of your word, Lord God. And Jesus, you are our sustenance. You do bring life from your life into us, O oh God. And you fill us up fully, O oh Father. And you satisfy like nothing else satisfies. Here right now, but Lord God, you will satisfy us with a brand new body. No sickness, no death. You satisfy us with eternal life. You satisfy us with paradise and your presence in the hereafter and for all eternity, Lord. And we just thank you for who you are. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the great price that was paid on our behalf. And we honor you and we thank you tonight. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Let's guys. let Kobe know we appreciate his bringing the word tonight. Amen. You know, I tell you what, when people teach the word of God, it makes me want to dig deeper. I know something went right. Uh, I, don't know if any, I don't know if anybody has an app. Here's one thing, and you may know the answer to this. When he said, I'm the bread of life, what was that word? Because there's, there's a couple of Greek words for life. One's bios life, and one's uh, zoe, I think, spirit life. Has anybody, uh, Josh, you got any insight? You got something that you can tell us? Because if it's Zoe life and he's, he just clears the bell saying, 
I'm bringing spiritual life to you. Uh, then I'm thinking, how could they not have gotten that? <laughs> if it's Bios life, which I doubt very seriously it is. But, and then another thing I thought about, too, in reference to uh, uh, just a, an application. When you listen and view Scripture through the lens of selfish personal gain, it will always lead you astray. If you think, how is this, I'm going to, uh, here's, you know, here's one that's been misused. Uh, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Well, the context is from the standpoint of sacrificial giving. That's not a blanket promise for anybody. And if we just grab that and just say, hey, my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Uh, hey, that doesn't work. It's in the context of him, him telling the Philippians, I believe, hey, you've, you've sacrificed, you've given, you've, 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 you've bled for me. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Everybody say amen. Josh, you find the word? Huh? His app is, oh no, what are we going to do? The world's coming to an end. Our apps are failing us. <laughs> that may happen in the end. <laughs> They thought before there ever was an app, uh, Y2K thought was, we thought that was going to bring it all to an end. Man, I enjoyed the word of God tonight. How about you? Amen. Hey, we've got interesting time we're in as a church in December. It's kind of a, a, an, you know, holidays. People get a little scattered and, and, uh, you know, and then we, we got to get, we kind of get out of gear. And I've kind of been a little bit out of gear because I didn't, when I don't preach on Sunday and I haven't, Catch this, I didn't teach last Wednesday because Ryan taught. I didn't preach Sunday, uh, and then I didn't preach or teach tonight. I, man, today I was out of gear. I'm going, i got to get in gear. I've got to get i got to get engaged with the Word of God. And I began to think, that's the way all of us can be in the holidays. So I want to encourage you to don't, don't disengage as we move through these holidays because we're going to hit January hard and strong with our emphasis on evangelism and reaching out. And uh, today I was strategizing and planning and uh, for how we're going to accomplish some of those things. And so, so don't disengage with, with uh, the Lord. Next Sunday is uh, uh, probably, uh, let's see, what's today? Today's the, I've got, I don't have my calendar. We've got two more Sundays in this, in this month, correct? Yeah. Those are two Sundays where people just ooh, really disengage, especially on the 28th after Christmas, uh, you know. And uh, so, hey, let's stay engaged, let's stay focused, and let's press through. Let's enjoy the holidays. Uh, man, I love the holidays, uh, but don't disengage from, from the power and the presence of the Lord and, and staying focused on the future. Amen?